0: Matt
1: Boudreaux. Thanks, Chuck. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Working Class Audio Podcast. This is session 308 you're listening to. My guest today is the return of Robert L. Smith. Robert was originally on episode six of the Working Class Audio Podcast. That was a long time ago. He's a producer, engineer, mixer. He's based in New York City. That hasn't changed. And he has worked with some Pretty big names out there. Lady Gaga, Michael Jackson, Aerosmith, David Byrne, and you two. We bring Robert back to check in about where things stand for him, where things stand during the COVID crisis, how he has navigated uh, the whole thing and how things have changed for him or not changed. And we're going to get to all of that. So very happy to have Robert back to join us. So, Robert L. Smith coming up here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Grab your coffee cups, friends. Let's talk about putting in the hours and hours of hard work. I am a person who thinks that there are no shortcuts to success. You can take some shortcuts in some respects, which will get you a short-term victory, but in the long term, that's not sustainable. If you have a track record and a history, slogging it out in the trenches and building up your work history, it's going to be a sustainable thing that you can carry forward and build upon. You build your career one project at a time. And some of those projects you work on are gonna be uh, well-funded, well-promoted, and that definitely can be to your advantage, certainly. For many of you, and I throw myself into this categorization, for many of you, you're going to be working for many years on projects that don't get promoted, don't have a big budget. However, you are building a history. I want to discourage you if you are new to the game of audio, from thinking that social media postings are your path to success. You cannot simply buy a bunch of gear, post about it, and expect that success is gonna come your way. I know, I sound like a curmudgeonly old man, but here's the thing. When you combine all the things I've talked about, and some of them have been in past monologues, participation, networking, hard work, being a person who can handle successes as well as failures, that's when you build a foundation of work. If you've been at it for a while, you run into people, say, uh, 10 years after a project. If you've done well on that project, even if there were challenges and, and you handled those challenges in a professional manner, the people on that project remember that. And when they see you 10 years later and they've got another project, they're gonna say, ah, it's been a while. We had such a good time on that project. It kicked our butts, but man, you were great. Why don't you come work with us on this project? But if you show immaturity, if you act like you're the smartest person in the room, and I know I use that term a lot because let's face it, that mentality can only get you so far too. When you act like you're the big dog all the time and you don't carry that uh, that experience with dignity, that turns people off. It turns me off. When I run into people like that, I'm just like, <sighs> whatever. I don't even want to deal with this person. I don't care what their accomplishments are if they think they're God's gift to the planet. You know, humble people who do kick-ass work, man, they're fun to be around. They can teach you things. They're willing to learn from you. They work hard. They do what's right. Yeah, those are the people in my mind that get hired. Yeah, there are the outliers out there. I'm sure that there's some knuckleheads out there that have none of the qualities that I'm talking about. That's fine. They're going to exist. But where do you want to be? How do you want to be remembered? The next time you run into somebody that you did some work with on a past project, do you want to be remembered as the hardworking person that kicked ass on the project and treated everybody well? Or do you want to be remembered as, yeah, they did okay, but man, they treated everybody on the project like an asshole. You know, that's the last thing you want to be. Well, at least that's the last thing I want to be. I shouldn't make any judgment calls on where you want to be. Yeah, I'm a little fired up. I've had a little coffee, and uh, I know I probably have a, a level of intensity to my voice. But I think it's really from what I want for myself. I really have made some mistakes in the past, and I've course-corrected over the years. So I'm not talking from you know high on some mountaintop here. I'm still in the trenches trying to trying to carve it out, trying to shape it and move it forward for me. So my advice to you, my fellow audio professionals, is treat people well, kick ass at the work you do if you make a mistake admit to it get past it figure out how you're going to get past it spend your time working on being a better audio professional and person do the work and let the work speak for itself if you feel confident about the work you've got great post about it but please don't go out and just jack up your credit cards buy a bunch of gear post it on social media and make a declaration that you're the person to hire i think that's just disingenuous That's my rant. Thanks for listening. Most of you already know about Grace Design and have known about them for years. Uh, They've been around since 1994. It was started by the two brothers, Michael and Eben Grace, who still run the company to this day. And you already know that they make incredible sounding products for us all. What you might not know if you don't know them is that Michael and Evan are two of the nicest people on the planet. Easily approachable, very knowledgeable. You might have met them at a trade show and experienced this. Without a doubt, it's one of my favorite companies out there in the world of Pro Audio. You m- might have heard me a few times talking about the Grace 908 Atmos controller. a number of people. They're the epitome of a small business here in the U.S., and I just love that whole thing. So if you are in the market for mic preamps or instrument preamps or monitor controllers, this is the company to check out hands down. If you don't know about them, go to gracedesign.com, check them out, and if you're in the market for any of those products, you absolutely have to consider what they offer because what they offer is superior build quality and sound quality, If your situation requires a little more extensive conversation, we can absolutely book a series of calls and, like I say, get you focused and get you moving forward. I've been there, and when you don't have anybody to talk to about it, it's a little frustrating. So head on over to WorkingClassAudio.com, click on the menu button, and book yourself in for a Zoom call with me. And we can sit down and chat, coffee's in hand, ready to tackle the business of audio together. Let's get to it. Robert L. Smith. Here on the Working Class Audio podcast. Robert, welcome back to the podcast. Thank you very much.
0: Glad to be back.
1: Yeah, it was like over five years ago. And I'm looking it up now because I don't even remember exactly. <laughs> you tell me the number is we were, oh, you were number yeah, it was six. Num- it was number six. So almost 300 episodes later. Wow. <laughs> that's
0: pretty crazy. <laughs> I hope you've gotten some rest since then. <laughs>
1: Yeah, things have changed a lot for me over these years, as they have, I'm sure, for you.
0: Yeah, yeah.
1: You're still on the East Coast.
0: Still in New York, still in Manhattan. Despite everyone leaving,
1: I'm still here. What about the places that you work? Has that changed much?
0: A little bit. I mean, obviously, you know, here, there was the shelter-in-place lockdown thing back in March. Mm -hmm. Places started reopening a bit, I think, around like the end of July, something like that. And I was... I've been back in studios since August on. So they they're going, it's the mask thing and the hand sanitizer and the microphone cleaning and all that kind of stuff. It's interesting how different it feels but at the same time everyone is always so psyched to be there because it's just been that long. You know, these are people that either play in shows or record like every single day. So like to not have that all of a sudden is kind of profound, you know, it, ch- it changes things obviously.
1: It does. I did a session my first session in months recently and it was weird Mm -hmm. how cathartic it was for everybody to be there yep it was different i mean sessions are sessions and they have their own excitement but this was different this felt different yeah no it
0: it does yeah i've done a couple like string dates and band sessions and band rehearsals it's interesting one thing that i realized is that i did a whole album of 11 songs i didn't realize till later that the singer even though he was in a room by himself had a mask on for the entire album He actually sang all the vocals of the mask on. And I was like, wait a minute.
1: That's insane.
0: Yeah, go figure. I I didn't even I didn't think about that until we were done. I was like, wait a minute. He had the mask on the whole time.
1: Built in pop filter.
0: Yeah. But you know, it's you know, because you have people like, Oh, I can't wear it, I can't breathe. It's like, hey, if this guy can freaking sing an album with a mask on, shut up.
1: (laughs) Yeah, you can you can do it. What have been the big changes in the last several years since I've talked to you last? The online thing is
0: grown exponentially since we last spoke. The interesting thing about the pandemic with everyone being at home is that, you know, like I've had my private studio now for 12 years. And once the pandemic hit, it actually, there really wasn't that much of a difference in that every day I'm here mixing and mastering or editing or whatever, you know, I mean, I do sessions here with people, but for the most part, most of my time is spent working on my own. That part wasn't different, which was kind of funny and sad at the same time. You know, (laughs) it's
1: just like, geez, (laughs) okay. Life inside (laughs) a room by yourself.
0: Yeah, yeah. It's just like, wow, okay. So yeah, obviously the sessions have changed a lot. And even the style of production I've been doing has changed a lot. Whereas before it's like, you know, I kind of have like a a house band of players. Mm -hmm. And then I have some like track guys I work with all the time. And we're kind of getting away from the live band for the most part, you know, that's kind of being the exception now as opposed to the norm. Just what pop music is now. And, you know, and I've had a couple crashes between those two worlds. Like somebody hired me to do a track and told them like, OK, we're going to live drums, whirly, acoustic bass, blah, blah, blah. And we do it. I bring in great players. We do it. And he was like, uh, yeah, that's not what I wanted you know so so a lot of these projects i always have to start out with when they say pop music i have to ask them what exactly they mean cuz everyone's definition is different especially on depending on their age you know somebody at 19's version of pop is going to be completely different than somebody's version of at 35 right so you have to you have to really clarify that because otherwise, yeah, you'll run into a dead end very, very quickly.
1: Do you find yourself, when you're working on a project and you're helping kind of get the players together, Mm -hmm. how much do you utilize players who deliver their tracks remotely?
0: I mean, this year I've done it. Most of the projects I've been doing have have been happening that way. Back in August, I had had two records I was doing. But other than that, everything else has been remote, like the drummer sends me his tracks, the bass player sends me his tracks, the guitar player. So, so you know, there are, there are people that I've used over the years, but aren't set up. They don't have that side of it together, the remote thing. So, you know, I can't throw them the work that I normally would, which is a drag, but that's kind of where we are. So it's a big thing.
1: I think it is a, a growing pain for a lot of musicians that want to stay oh, yeah. working, is they have to get yeah. good at recording themselves.
0: Yeah, yeah. And it's way more than just buying a mic and an interface. That's like a tiny part of it. You have to be able to get sounds and, and know what a good sound is or, you know, know what guitar sound is going to translate into this song. So, yeah, you got to be a little bit self sufficient for sure.
1: I'm mixing some stuff now that I convinced the artist to hire Kenny Arnoff to play drums on remotely. Cool. It was remarkable how good these tracks sounded. Yeah. Really outstanding. Yet, I do know some players here in the Bay Area that have struggled, you know, to put these rigs together. Yeah,
0: yeah, absolutely. Like I said, it's hard. You can't do it over like an afternoon and sending people tracks in two days. Yeah. <laughs> it's not not going to work.
1: It's changed a little bit of the dynamic of the engineering aspects of a record when the musicians yeah. are getting involved in their own tracks. But it has the ability to give them some more control over sonically what they think they sound like and what should be delivered.
0: Yeah, Absolutely.
1: Now the mixing part of it, how's that been for you? Have you done some remote mixing gigs?
0: Yeah, I mean, that's actually my main gig, really. I mean, right now I'm mixing three different albums. Yeah, that's kind of my daily thing. You know, like my days of tracking in a studio are the exceptions for sure. So every day is like another song to mix. I have one um, really interesting project, came out of Washington state with this new artist. This is my first album. That was done by iPhone in GarageBand.
1: Okay, <laughs> so I'm confused. So they actually recorded all the parts through an iPhone into GarageBand.
0: GarageBand is in an iPhone and she got one of those Apogee hype mics. Mm-hmm. So she originally hired me just speaking of the Kenny Aronoff kind of thing, she had originally hired me just to mix and master. But as a new artist and not in a band or something like that, you know, her tracks were like a little too simple, like a static garage band loop with like ukulele and piano over top Mm -hmm. and i was like i could mix this for you but i feel like you need the production first you know and and of course the album is 22 songs so Mm -hmm. (laughs) so whereas she thought she was done i kind of like went back to the beginning treating her recordings more as demos which she kind of was like hey wait a minute i'm like hold on hold on So I did some edits and then had my guys replace the drums, add a bassline, add guitars, add keyboards. It's actually turning out amazing. Her songs are really good. I'm like, you got to somehow work this in that you did this in your phone because <laughs> she's tracking all of her vocals in her phone.
1: Now, my brain just goes to the <laughs> point of like the logistics of that. Okay. So you have an artist who's done this, yep. the process of Asking somebody to replace the drums or the bass or, or any part mm-hmm. of the original recording. Like, how does that work financially? Do you convince her that this is how we should do it and I need to pay this guy X amount of dollars? Or does she yeah. say, take a chance and if I don't like it, I don't want to pay for it? Or
0: no, by the time we got to that, Stage, she trusted me because we'd gone back and forth a bit before we even did this. Whereas, like, I kind of did some arrangement edits and stuff like that to the song, so she saw what a difference it was just to at least do that. So mm-hmm. that that kind of built in the trust. And anytime I do that, actually, it's ever never really been an issue of like, well, what if I don't like it? They actually have never not liked it. Okay. Because I mean, so much of it's just having a very uh, considerable amount of communication to start. One thing since we last spoke is that I'm thinking of doing is getting a business card that says my name and my title of manager of expectations. (laughs) (laughs) Because that's really, really what the gig has turned out to be in that, okay, I want to do this and I'm like, okay, well, what do you have for budget? And you tell me what you have and I'll tell you what you can expect.
1: And Are the budgets inevitably always just, like, ridiculously small?
0: It varies. I mean, some are
1: reasonable. You know, I present,
0: like, the best of scenario, like, well, if you really want to go for it, we can do this. Or if you... Don't want to do that or can't afford it. We can go cheaper. That's kind of what a lot of it, what it is. Because so many people are doing this on their own. And if they were never in the industry to begin with, you know, they don't even know how this really works. So it's a lot of educating on my part as well. I
1: was going to ask, there's a lot of education. Yeah. Do you find that frustrating to have to educate?
0: Not too often because people are like starving for this knowledge. Mm. You can only watch so many YouTube videos. And there's a lot of misinformation out there. So when I do have like a real conversation with people the look on their face you can just tell they've never heard this stuff before it's like i'm kind of telling them straight i've been doing like more and more like coaching sessions cuz i've i've always mentored younger artists and engineers and stuff like that previously. So it's kind of evolved into a little bit of a coaching thing where we'll schedule a time and we'll do an hour or something like that, just basically an online class. But this is them thinking that they still have information they can't find and they really, really need to talk to somebody that's been there. So it's been pretty serious on that end, you know, in a cool way in that they are just so anxious and taking notes furiously. And (laughs) it's cool. It's very cool. You know, as I always like to say, it's like, what's the point of having this experience if it doesn't benefit someone else later on?
1: As we're talking, and the audience can't see this, but you've got some gold and what appears to be platinum records on the wall behind you. Yeah, up
0: on the walls. Yeah.
1: Yeah. So what is it that you think you've done right that has got you to work on projects that get promoted have support behind them and sell so that you can put those things on your on your wall there.
0: Probably a good portion of it is it's all in who you know. You know, it's all those relationships. In my camp has been the people that have are doing those gigs and making those decisions and working with those companies and they're bringing me in when they think my expertise can benefit the project. And it's 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 fascinating to see the difference of A project that has like the machine behind it and one that doesn't. I always tell people like I was just on a chat yesterday, there's so much music that if there was some kind of budget to really get it out there, so much of this music would really appeal to a massive audience. It's just that the audience has no chance of hearing it.
1: When you know something does or does not have the quote-unquote machine behind it, does that affect your decision-making on projects you choose?
0: No, it actually doesn't. I got to connect with it in some way. I got to feel it in some way. I mean, I actually turned down a lot of projects because of that, you know, where it's just like, I don't know what I could bring to this. It can be kind of challenging. There's projects I turn down and there's projects I take that I wish I turned down. Mm. It's a challenge. I mean, when one of the, I think it was Isotope sent me a survey of like, what kind of plugin would you really want? And I'd be like, I would love a plugin that would determine the psychological leanings of a (laughs) a future client. (laughs) That's what I need more than anything. (laughs) Are are they nuts? Are they safe? You know,
1: (laughs) I call that the, it's basically, it's the pain in the ass factor. It's like, well, yeah, Yeah. I could work with this person, but the pain in the ass factor is really high.
0: Oh, man. Yeah. No, it really is. And I mean, I have charged more for people that don't have a sense of humor. (laughs) I've definitely... (laughs) Well, think about that. Think of how long it takes for an album, right? And it's like, think of like all the like carrying on and jokes to happen over the course of the project. And imagine to have the project with none of that. Mm. You know, where like you say a joke and it just goes into a vacuum, like no acknowledgement, nothing.
1: And it's like, that's too much. (laughs) Is that ever age related, do you think?
0: It can be. It can be. Yeah. I've definitely worked with some teenage girls who, man, (laughs) no sense of humor. Oh my God. It's. Fascinating. It's like, boy, I hope you find it one day. I really do. From someone, anyone.
1: <laughs> Watch some stand-up comedy, please. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. How has COVID affected your workload? Do you feel that it hasn't changed much because you're essentially working at home mixing? or?
0: I mean, obviously it changed it, but more so from the recording side. I mean, strangely enough, I thought I was being punked about this. I had like four projects in a row that needed a choir. And but by the time I got the fourth one, it was like, who's doing this? (laughs) No one ever calls me to to get a choir on a song. And like by the fourth one, I'm like, come on, (laughs) like can this really be real? (laughs) (laughs) So I had a few things fall away on that end, just because we you know we couldn't get all those people in a room and deadlines. Some of them were for films. Mm -hmm. So I mean, the thing that's really that I'm finding interesting is that because everything sort of stopped. Now There's like all this people are I feel like people are in need of new material. Like think about Netflix. It's like, all right, I watched everything on Netflix. What else you got? Because all the production stopped on these films and shows and stuff. And now there's like this sort of void of time. Yeah, it's still going to be a while before there's episodes in the can or films in the can. So, so I'm seeing that kind of thing. That's, that's been interesting. I mean, I've been still been actually mixing through the whole, this whole time, which has been pretty amazing. I didn't really know what to expect, but um, a lot of my clients are from overseas and I guess people were still rolling in those places. So it's all worked
1: out. They can drop comments in the timeline. They can listen on any device. They can listen to it in high res. And if I want them to pay for the mix or master before they download it, because of the Stripe integration, I can set that up. There's also Dropbox integration, which allows me to quickly create a folder in my Dropbox, which automatically syncs with Sampley, makes it much more simple. You should check it out for yourself. Sampley.app, check it out. So that brings me to how is the work coming in? You you mentioned overseas work. Are you actively doing anything to get that overseas work or is it just word of mouth? I'm
0: not actually. I kind of started the online thing like seriously in like 2007 as far as like branding and slick website and stuff like that. If you recall, it was never cool to like promote yourself as an engineer. Mm. But I at that point, I was like, yeah, I could kind of see once Pro Tools like really took over and, you know, we're people weren't in the rooms anymore. I was like, I, you know, I got to think of something else here to sort of keep this going. So I promoted myself online, like Facebook ads and stuff for a while. And people find me all the time. I've had people pretty much from every country and they'll just Google music producers or something. And I, I come up pretty high on the list, I guess. So, so they find me quite often that way.
1: So it's really been a focus on the website. Like when you say when I'm doing the online thing, is that what you're referring to? To
0: a degree, I've always been active on all the social media stuff, whether it was Facebook or LinkedIn or now Instagram. So I find that that's kind of been a real key. I mean, even to the point where like, maybe like six years ago, I had I had a guy hire me and I had worked with him one time in like 2002. And he hired me because he saw how active I was on Facebook with like all my sessions and stuff like that. It was just like, wow. (laughs) I always kind of joke of that as the virtual hallway. Back in the day, I used to work at like Power Station and Hit Factory, and you would get gigs by being in the hallway in those multi room facilities. So now, it, since that's not happening anymore, it's like people will bump into you on your Facebook page or whatever. So it's that sort of thing. that I guess people see that I'm always working on the one they call,
1: I guess. I don't know. I've never thought of it that way, the virtual hallway. Yeah. No, it's been a
0: real thing. I've had my experience with it, and I have no careers, careers that have been defined by somebody sitting in the lounge and somebody walking by going, hey, do you play whatever?
1: You know... Usually when I get somebody on the show, it's their first time of being on the show and I'm asking them things that pertain to a career, right? Mm-hmm. Mistakes or anything like that. So you've already been on. So in the last five or so years or six six or so years, mm-hmm. what have been the big lessons you've learned about this craft. Have you made any big mistakes? Have you learned any great lessons along the last 6 years?
0: Not too many mistakes, thankfully, because you know, I got them all out when I was younger. <laughs> I figure once you get past a million of them, you kind of get a little bit of a break as far as the the number of mistakes. So once I pass my million mark, maybe I'm in an elite club or something now. <laughs> It's just more about reinforcing all the things I learned earlier. Well, especially now, too, because the online thing is such a thing. There are people that don't trust it, you know, or think it's a scam, which is totally a viable concern. Mm-hmm. I've had people go like, how can I be sure that this is really Robert Smith replying to me? Like, well, I'm honored that you think I'd be a scam artist, but... um." <laughs> Because sometimes some of these budgets are as big as they were for labels. So it's like when you have somebody talking to you through a computer, it can be a little bit of a challenge. I mean, I've had people that I've met online that basically come by, just want to like shake my hand, look me in the eye, and then they give me the deposit. That's a thing. So it's just always more and more about how you work with people, getting people's trust and running your business like a business. I get like compliments on that all the time. Things that we take for granted, you're running a recording studio or a production company. When someone thanks me for just sort of doing what I do, it's like, well, what if your experience has been before this? Yikes, that you know, like this is like an exception to you.
1: What are some examples of that?
0: There's a lot of shady people out there that are mix engineers, and like, oh, I'll mix your song for $80. Hmm. So it's like, well, what exactly does that even sound like? I don't even know. so there's you know, So there's a lot of scam artists out there that will gladly take your money and not deliver anything like what they promised. Or maybe it'll just take your money and vanish. So there's a lot of filtering on that end.
1: Do you find it's best to get into video calls with potential online clients?
0: Not necessarily. I mean, it does happen sometimes. Mm -hmm. It is strange how often the whole project just stays online and there's actually never a phone call or a video call. Mm -hmm. You'd be surprised at how many are just like that, especially when it's overseas. Yeah, I've done like whole albums with people and we've never actually spoken a word to
1: each other. Do you ever find yourself in a position on a mix with an overseas client where you might approach it in a more Western-style way of production... So it it causes that to stand out a little differently than what the environment that music is going to live in.
0: A little bit, not too often. People usually come to me because of what I do. The Asian thing's been tricky that way. I've had a few projects from China that have not worked out the way they should, mainly because, again, manager of expectations, they either didn't know what they wanted or or that sort of thing. For instance, I had this one project with this artist from Taiwan, and this was really interesting. So I produced the music here in New York, and once all the songs were done, they came here to sing it, and the artist came here with her manager. Most of the songs were not in English, and so I finished the album, I mixed the album and then when she went home, I didn't hear anything for a while and I found out later on that in Taiwan, the music industry, there's like four people that run it. And if your project does not run through one of these people, it's pretty much dead in the water. And that extends to vocals and the precision of the delivery as far as they they have a very specific way that you have to sing things. And if you don't sing it that way, you're wrong. Think about that. It's like the vocal police. And so she'd already invested all this money and she redid some of the songs there with one of the people that's there to like coach her on vocals. But the project never really saw the light of day. So it was like she was kind of shunned for it, even though the record was cool. Because she didn't do it the way that you're supposed to do it in Taiwan, it didn't get the acceptance that it could have if she recorded her vocals there at home. I thought that was
1: really That's bizarre. Yeah, yeah. But once again, just, you know, understanding the different ecosystems around the world. Yeah. Would you agree that it's very tempting just to kind of put on our Western hats and go, well, this is how music should sound?
0: Yes, to a degree. But the one thing I've learned about working with international artists is every country has their own definition of, I'll get right back to you. (laughs) It's like, it could be an hour, it could be a week, it could be a month. It could be years. So anytime anybody says that, it's like, all I can recommend is don't sit there waiting. Just move on with your life. If it's going to happen or they're going to get back to you, it's going to happen. I've had people reach out to me for a project and then they vanish. And then like two years later, they're like, okay, I'm ready. It's like, what?
1: <laughs> Who is this? And what What are we talking about? Yeah,
0: exactly. It's like, um, you do music, right? It's like, oh, oh God. Uh, yeah.
1: That's interesting. Wow it's a learning process. I guess it is a learning process. I mean, there's language barriers, one aspect, but I mean, this is an entirely different kind of category we're talking about here.
0: Yeah, it's cultural and like how business gets done. I don't know any of that stuff. I'm I'm a mixer. (laughs) So it's kind of like I'm learning in the fire here.
1: What about budgets overseas versus budgets domestically?
0: They're usually better from overseas quite often. I think in some ways, At least from my experience, they kind of value the craft a little bit more than they do here. Hmm. That's just kind of what I'm seeing. I've had people reach out to me, you know, with some really silly numbers. And it's like, you know, (laughs) I'm honored that you, but like, yeah, I'm I'm sorry. I can't do that.
1: What are your thoughts about post COVID hypothetical? Let's say we get a vaccine, cases start to clear up, and we all start to go, okay, let's go out a little more. What do you think is going to happen with? our business in the post-COVID world? Man, I don't know.
0: The heartening thing is I think most guitar manufacturers have had their best year ever this year because all the people were home and bought guitars or drums or keyboards. And my friends at Sweetwater, it's been bananas here the whole time because everybody's been trying to buy a system or like I'm sitting around here for months, I might as well learn how to play guitar. So that's been kind of cool. So there's going to be this tsunami of songs that are going to come out of it for sure. But I I can't really say, I mean, I've been asking people this question. How are you going to feel when you're at your first post-COVID stadium concert. You're going to be losing your mind. I mean, is the whole place just going to be in tears? What's that going to be like? But the thing that I'm really worried about is, you know, I live right here. I'm literally like five minutes from Broadway and it's been a ghost town. And I mean, I know hundreds of players that have been out of work and are going to be out of work till like next summer. And so my worry is, Who's still going to be around post-COVID as far as players, as far as technicians, as far as roadies, crews? It's like, who can afford to sit around until then? That's, That's the part that really worries me.
1: Yeah, I think, oh God, there's so many layers to this particular onion. Yeah, yeah. But you know what, I mean, that's that's a part that, you know, I mean,
0: I always try to look on the bright side, but, you know, who's still going to be standing at that point?
1: It raises a lot of questions about, on the other side of this, with your comment about, you know, so many guitars being sold. And with the recent death of Eddie Van Halen, it makes me think, do we have the next prodigy yeah. being formed right now? And will, yeah. we, will we see that again? And will that cause a shift in the music business in terms of what's popular, will rock start to rise up again from that perspective? Mm-hmm. That's what crosses my mind. Now, the other part of that too, that you you mentioned, like going to a concert and losing your mind, I wonder, and I won't go into a political rabbit hole here, but the country has been very divided for quite some time now. Oh, and man. I wonder if post COVID in that scenario, if there's just going to be so much happiness that people will have a different appreciation for one another at places like going to a show?
0: I hope so. I really hope so. The thing that's been really disappointing about the political side is that no one's talking about the arts. It's like, hmm, what would have been the lockdown been like without books, films, music? What would people have done if they didn't have any of that? So, you know, the fact that like there's been no talk of kind of any saving the venues, giving benefits to players, all these different things like that. So that, that's that been really disappointing. I definitely have friends that are way more vicious about this conversation than I'll ever be. It's troubling when there's all this talk of essential workers, but what the heck is a definition of an essential worker?
1: Right, right, because our economy is dependent upon the entertainment industry just as much as it is dependent yeah. upon... Grocery stores.
0: Look where I'm here. I think Broadway brings in, it's like $16 billion a year. So, with Broadway being gone, all the tourists are gone. All the hotels are closed. The cabbies are penniless because there's no fares. Because mm-hmm. here it's like so much exists. You know, there, there are people that come all over the world for like two weeks here just to see as many shows as they can. And in that time, they're eating and they're traveling, you know. So with all that gone till like next year, it's really leaving this serious vacuum. So that that part really worries me a lot because I, like I said, I have a lot of friends really suffering and especially older players that primarily did shows or tours or don't have a recording set up at home. Mm-hmm. You know, they're the ones that have been sitting around. Some of them I can't get on the phone because, you know, they're probably so out of their minds. So that part's pretty hard, for sure.
1: Assume New York is going through what San Francisco is going through, which is rents are going down. People are leaving left oh, yeah. and right.
0: It's been an exodus here for sure.
1: So then that's going to affect what happens on the back end of all this. Yeah. It's going to be pretty challenging.
0: Yes, yeah, so, I mean, you know, the, I guess the big thing is that no one knows what this is going to be like. There's no book to look at, there's no no <laughs> no guy to ask. It's like hell if I know.
1: <laughs> yeah, it's my first pandemic. <laughs> yeah, <exactly. laughs> that's what I, that's, the, that's what I hear quite a bit. <laughs> yeah. Is this exactly. your first pandemic? Yeah. yeah.
0: <laughs> so I uh, yeah, I'm cautiously optimistic, but I do worry a lot about my Fellow industry partners, for sure, because not not everybody had a good situation to just sit back on or cruise with.
1: Bringing it back to the recording side of things a little more, has your mixing workflow changed much in the last five years?
0: Nope, I know like four more keystrokes. That's really about it.
1: <laughs> mixing in the box, right?
0: No, I do hybrid. Oh, I, I you have do like summing. I have API summing, and yeah, I, I've tried, man. I've really tried. Once in a while, I can pull it off. Usually for like more of like electronic stuff. Mm-hmm. Every time I think that I'm there, I'm really not.
1: And do you continue to add gear to your arsenal, or have you kind of brought that back? No, a bit?
0: it's it's pretty much stayed the same for a while. The last addition I've had is probably the Loop Trotter Monster Compressor. That was three years ago that was probably the last new thing I got Hmm. and I'm pretty covered I mean I've had nine different studios and my my list is sort of distilled down to what I really really use I got rid of some of those weird boxes that you plug in like twice a year that kind of thing (laughs) so it's all just sort of like the staples that I have here
1: What about microphone collection? Because you're mixing more and mastering, so...
0: I still have a big mic collection. I have like 100 mics.
1: And you're living in an apartment in Manhattan, right? Yep. And how many square feet do you have? Let's just say it's really small. Do you cram all those microphones (laughs) in?
0: I have those. I have like five vintage amps in a closet, and I have a storage unit (laughs) in the neighborhood. So yeah, it's, it's a challenge.
1: Now, I know we keep bringing COVID up, but I mean, you're mixing in your apartment there in Manhattan. Mm -hmm. Work-life balance-wise, how do you manage that with all of this right now? Do you get out?
0: A little bit. Probably the only difference is the social thing. I mean, because most people left. I have like one person left here, really. But they have some health issues, so we don't really get together that often. So the social thing has kind of really taken a massive hit, as you would expect. So a lot of phone calls, a lot of FaceTime, that kind of thing. But the strange thing is, is that there really is nothing to go out to. I had a client who lives in New Hampshire presently and came here to do some vocals. And she used to live here back in like the 90s. So she, you know, she has people and anytime she'd be here, she'd always go check out some shows or get dinner with some friends or something like that. But the last time she was here, she was staying in a hotel. When we were done, it was like there wasn't anything to do. You know, At that point, restaurants weren't open yet. Mm. So it was like, well, you can walk in Central Park. <laughs> that's really, you can walk around. That's really it. Because there's nothing else to do otherwise.
1: What would stop you from leaving New York and just going elsewhere where the cost of living is lower? You can still mix and master and have more space.
0: I've thought about it, but this is just home. The one reason why I'm here is one word and it's energy. Mm. In that, like I go crazy when I'm in the suburbs because I grew up in the suburbs. I grew up in the woods and farms and stuff like that. So I know what that is. I'm so hardcore in New York that I never, ever have a longing to go back to that. And I've been here in the city for 34 years. I don't ever feel the need to like go hiking or any of that stuff. I'm totally one of the weirdos, for sure. I wouldn't
1: consider that
0: a weirdo trait. Well, no, but you know, I'm basing it on most people that come here, they last eight years. Yeah. That's when it starts to fray and they start to lose it. And and in that eighth year, in the summertime, they go out of town every weekend. And then pretty much soon after that, then they go back to where they're from or somewhere else. So eight years is the average.
1: I lasted in San Francisco for 12. When I say lasted, my wife said, we should go to Oakland and and buy a house. (laughs) And I went kicking and screaming. I did not want to leave San Francisco. (laughs) I was like, what do you mean? Go out there to the the burbs. Yeah, yeah. But once I got out, I was like, oh, there's parking and more space. And then we went even further east of that. And now I'm really in the burbs. And I'm like kind of addicted to it in a a strange (laughs) way.
0: Well, you know, it's like, I mean, I haven't had a car since the 80s. I live like two blocks from the Hudson River. Hmm. And you go out there and you you can smell the Atlantic because this is a harbor town. Central Park's right there. So I feel like I got a pretty good balance.
1: Looking ahead, now that you've been in this for a while, what are your prospects for retirement at some point?
0: I'm not really big on
1: that. Okay.
0: I'm, I'm, gonna, I'm not a retirement guy. I'm going to be one of those that just like falls over. Yeah. That's kind of my goal.
1: Oh, I'm with you. When people talk about it, I'm like, what does that mean? Because I mean, I like what I do, so why would I stop?
0: Yeah, exactly. A lot of people I know that have retired have not done well. It's been very rough to hear about it and see it. Yeah. I don't believe in the idea of retirement in the sense of it's like vacation. Vacation from what? I wake up at noon every day and I listen to music all day. I mean, you know, <laughs> what's you know,
1: what's how is this hard? Why do I have to escape this?
0: Yeah, yeah. So, I don't understand the whole idea of living a life and then hitting like the stop button because you're told you're supposed to. It's like, why? Right. I don't I actually don't believe in it really.
1: It's almost like, why not just shape your life the way you want it now and live it? that's what I've done. It makes total sense to me. And it's kind of how I have shaped my life, which is funny because every time my wife says, oh, we're going to go on this trip, I start to get tense as we get closer because I'm like, <laughs> okay, wait a minute. I got to make sure everything's taken care of and all yeah. clients have what they need. And it freaks me out every time I have to admit.
0: Yeah. No, I mean, I grew up like that. My parents had a service station for many years Yeah. and they were a little OCD in that We never went on vacations. I mean, they got married in 64. And I think the first time we went on a vacation was like 79. And that was only because they found a guy that they could trust to be in charge of the station while they were away.
1: Interesting. That's kind of my background. Is that where your work ethic really stems from, is is your parents? The only
0: religion was work. There actually was no religion at all. So yeah, it's a very, very much ingrained in my system for sure.
1: And did you work at the service station?
0: I did. Yep, I pumped gas when I was a kid.
1: Wow. What was the station? What was the brand?
0: The one I had at the time my dad is a shell station. Okay. And then uh, by the time I left and moved to New York, he had acquired a second one, which was an Arco, Arco wow. station, which, yeah, so he had two stations for a little bit. It's a different thing. And it was pretty tough just because it's every day. It's like one step shy of owning a restaurant. Yeah. And that it's every day, you know, holidays. He was the guy that if a car got in an accident at four in the morning, the sheriffs would call him to come tow it out. Wow. And one very interesting thing, especially if you have teenagers at all, is that he said most times when he would pull a car out from wherever, one of the things he automatically would do back then was turn down the radio because 95% of the time when you'd start the car up, the radio would be blasting in the car that just crashed (laughs) Yeah, most of the time. Totally. There you go. Yep.
1: Well, so we're pretty much out of time, but people can find you at defirecordings.com. Is that the best place?
0: Yep. D E F Y R E C O R D I N G S dot com. And thank you for pronouncing it right, because I'm amazed how many people don't know how to say that word. Oh.
1: I, I don't know how <laughs> else
0: you would say it, but I've had people at a bank say Deffy. Yeah, usually Deffy. Deffy. Yeah. Hmm.
1: Well, it was great to have you back on the show and yeah, man, interesting to check in with you after all these years and especially at this very particular time in our lives, in our first yeah. pandemic that mm-hmm. we've experienced, of course. Mm-hmm. I hope to see not only obviously the COVID thing to clear up, but I really mm. hope New York bounces back. I hope it doesn't fall into such a state of disrepair that it's like, I don't know, back in the seventies.
0: It's, it's going to take a minute. It's gotten a little rough for sure. Yeah. But it's gonna it's gonna take a couple of years at least to get back.
1: Well, I hope work continues for you. I'm glad to hear that you are still working and you're, yeah, surviving. Yeah. Knock on wood. Yeah, in this time Likewise. period. Thank you so much for being on the show again. Yeah, thank you. Great to talk to you. Always a pleasure. Here on the Working Class Audio Podcast, thank you so much for joining me today. I want to thank my crew, Anne-Marie Plo on the editing, Cliff Truesdell on the Working Class Audio theme song, and Mr. Chuck Smith for his lovely voice. As usual, connect with me on LinkedIn. And until next time, take care. Hey, I know many of you are aware of this, but for those of you that aren't aware,